Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I've got a wonderful show planned for you. And I've got uh, on my studio line, just to get things started, Dr. Ann Bradley. And Ann is a regular guest on the show. We haven't had her on this year, so I'm excited to catch up with her. She is uh, the George and Sally Meyer Fellow for Economic Education and Director at the Fund for American Studies. She's also a contributor at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. She's a, a professor, a visiting professor at Georgetown University and also teaches at the Institute for World Politics. And so nice to have you on the show today. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I understand your brother's coming in town. You're going to have a little Christmas celebration with him. Starting, Belated Christmas. Starting today, yes, yeah. Like to, yes, drag it out as long <laughs> as I can. Have you left the tree up for him? I had to take the tree down because I don't want my house to catch on fire, so that's the only reason it's gone. Yeah. Well, we're off to a crazy wild start in 2021, and I'm real curious to try to get some uh, input from you about what we are facing as far as economic issues involving, let's say, the middle class, maybe what some of the challenges ahead might be. Um, I know that's kind of a broad brushstroke, but maybe we can start talking about... um, just wondering about wages and people who are surviving paycheck to paycheck. Yes. Well, this certainly should be in the forefront of our consideration. As we all know, 2020 um, just was a wild year in many ways. And I think in terms of the, the not just the middle class, but, um, you know, the bottom income groups as well, I think that they took a, a really hard hit in 2020. The pandemic, of course, was something we've never seen before. um, And it really just brought uh, a lot of aspects of life to a halt pretty quickly. And we really have to figure out how to recover from that. And I think I would say in spite of the virus, I think we cannot wait for this idea of, okay, well, once the virus is gone or quote unquote Mm -hmm. under control, Right. We just have to go on in spite of it. And we have to figure that out for the sake of everyone. But most importantly, people in the middle class and people at the bottom of the income distribution. Just to give you some data around this, uh, people at the bottom of the income distribution fared the worst in terms of jobs. Uh, Those employment rates were down by twenty three point five percent. It's not hard to think about why. So think about restaurants and Uber drivers and people who clean hotel rooms, Mm -hmm. people who clean conference centers. Uh, Those people cannot work from home, right? So if, if the restaurant's not open, there's no dishes to wash. You can't do that from home. You're just no longer needed at that time. And so what we have to figure out is in spite of the virus, it's going to be with us. Yes, we're rolling out vaccines. I think that's a great thing. I think that we can rebound from this. But I think in the meantime, what we need to allow people to do is find ways to safely go back to work 
as soon as possible. And this is going to get to those not just wage issues, but really entrepreneurship, which is the lifeblood of our economy. And I think that's taken a hit in 2020 as well. Yeah. I think there was a, something I read that a very small percentage of people right now feel that uh, they could cover a, a $400 emergency repair in their in their mm-hmm. finances. When I hear things like that, it it's heartbreaking that people are living so close to the margin. Yes, and so you know, th- there's a lot of things we could talk about around around that issue. One, I just think is our spending habits versus our saving habits. That's certainly one issue. But another issue is just thinking about wages, and that is very much connected to economic growth. So if you want wages to grow, what we need, and I think any economist I hope would say this, uh, incomes and wages grow when people become more productive. Mm -hmm. And people become more productive when it's not everybody thinks it's about formal education. Yes, that's some of it. But really, people become more productive when they're able to get out there and work. Um, They learn by doing. We learn in schools. We learn outside of schools. And so, again, I think this pandemic has really put – a wrench in that, in our ability to learn, and our ability to solve problems, because we're not at work. Uh, and some people can work from home, right? You and I can do that. Mm-hmm. And it's not convenient. It's not ideal. But we can do it, and we can survive. Um, but what about people who can't? And what about people who, you know, if, if the dishwasher is sent home for a month, you know, speaking of not being able to cover a $400 cost, you don't even have an income, for a month. And yes, I know that we've done stimulus packages, multiple rounds. Um, the stimulus checks from Trump's latest stimulus program are coming out. Uh, Biden is promising another round of stimulus. But these are Band-Aids. Uh, the source is getting people back to work. And I think, um, you know, we can debate how much the government should give people. And, and certainly there might be a case to be made for that, especially certain types of workers, which we've already discussed. But that's a Band-Aid. What we really need to do is solve the fundamental problem of allowing people to get back to their jobs in new and different ways, I think. But I think we can do that. Mm-hmm. So what about uh, wages? Now, when you hear about um, raising the minimum wage, is that going to help business or is that going to end up hurting business? Well, I'd like to make a caveat before I fully answer your question, if that's okay. Um, And the caveat is wages are really the worst metric for how people are doing. I mean, obviously, they're easy to get. It's data that's easy to get, so a lot of people focus on it. But the problem is the wage does not uh, show us a person's full compensation. So we want to look at the whole compensation package that someone has. So it's not just their wage, but it's their benefit. It's maybe retirement or 401k contributions. It's health insurance contributions. It's vacation time and many other things that go along with what your employer pays to have you there. And that's true across all, all the entire income distribution. So I think we should stop just looking at wages and look at total compensation packages to give us a sense of how people are doing. Uh, that's the caveat. To get to directly to your question, you know, I think that the minimum wage sounds on paper like a good idea. People will make this type of argument. Well, the minimum wage is seven fifty. We could double it and make it fifteen dollars and. That would be a lot for somebody who's washing dishes. That person would be at the lower end of the income distribution, and that's true. It would be a big gain. 
um, right? It's a hundred percent increase in your income um, mm-hmm. or in your wage. So you could, on paper, it sounds like a good idea. But the question that the economist must ask is, well, where does that money come from? We can't just snap our fingers with the, our policy and you know make money appear or make these resources appear. And so businesses have to. You know, it's a trade-off. They have to take money that was dedicated to other things, and now they're doubling someone's income. That is good only if you are the person whose income is doubled and you keep your current hours. But what we know about minimum wage policy is that's usually not the case. So there's very few people who actually get a big net benefit from minimum wage because what tends to happen is that the employer will substitute around the workers. So let's say you're new to the job and you're making minimum wage, you're washing dishes in a restaurant, you'd have very little experience. Maybe English is not your first language, so you wouldn't be able to work in the front of the restaurant. So that person who's new, inexperienced, doesn't have a lot of other skills potentially in that uh, for that employer that person now, or that employer now has to pay that person double what they were paying them before, right? Well, what is that employer going to do? They might say, well, we're going to cut your hours way down to the bare minimum, or maybe we're going to fire you because I already have a dishwasher mm-hmm. who has lots of experience, and you're kind of an unknown quantity to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to give that dishwasher that I already know Um, what their output is, and I would pay them that $15 an hour. And then sometimes what we see is these franchise owners are doing the work themselves. So if you run a local McDonald's, instead of, you know, being – because you're doubling your payroll for this person, you're going to wash some of the dishes on your own. So that also cuts the hours of the person that we're trying to help. Mm -hmm. All right, and let's talk about the first quarter of 2021. Are we going to, how are we going to, what's the economy going to do in terms of recovering some of the lost ground that we had from this past year? Well, I'm going to give the standard economist answer, which I is love it that. depends. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah. you can't hold me to that answer. I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the, this is a tough question because we don't know, and it's such a different year in the sense yeah. that we have a new, we have a new president. Um, we have uh, changes in the legislature, and so we just don't know. But certainly analysts are out there. They're looking at what can we expect. And I think there's certainly things that we can expect from the new administration and from, uh, in terms of how we're going to deal with wages and income and economic growth. And what we should expect is, is a greater amount of government spending, and I think eventually that's going to impact inflation. Um, And, you know, the question that's being tossed around right now is what is the new stimulus bill going to look like? So people are agitating for perhaps $1,400 or $2,000 checks rather than a $600 check. Um, And so, you know, it's really going to to depend on how those decisions are made and what those decisions are. But despite the stimulus, again, what I would say is – We have to figure out how we're going to help people who cannot work from home or who cannot work remotely get back to work safely, again, in spite of the virus. So in December, we were down, you know, uh, I believe 140,000 jobs. Um, So the unemployment rate in December was 6.7 percent. So we're still not back where we need to be. And I think we maybe we'll never get back to exactly where we were, or maybe we'll take years to get exactly to where we were. I think we can recover. But I think the key is not just the stimulus checks, but it's how are we going to allow businesses to creatively solve these problems? Did you know that nationwide, one quarter of all small businesses have closed? Mm, 
That is devastating. Small, it's it's devastating. Oh yeah. And small business is the lifeblood of an economy, right? Even Jeff Bezos started as a small business guy. Bill Gates, small business guy. So big right. businesses started out as small businesses. And that's the American dream. And so we have to get people in a position where they can unleash the, 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 their creativity and start more businesses, restart businesses, get back to work. I think that is just what we have to focus on in this first quarter. Mm-hmm. And I think there are ways to do it. And look, the vaccine is really, um, it's a great thing. It happened so fast. It's, it's something to just be celebrating. I mean, you know, certainly it's new and there's a lot of things we don't know, but I really think this gives optimism. Um, that people can get back to work, that children can go back to school. Because think about parents. If you work outside of your home, not inside of your home, and you can't bring your work home, um, you know, and your kids are also not able to go to school, even if you can go back to work, but your kids are, aren't able to go back to school, then you really still have a serious problem. So how people are able to manage their households, I think this is going to, should be the focus of the first quarter and second quarter of 2021, because that's going to allow us to, you know, kind of go back to work. Um, and there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and uh, American entrepreneurs are the people to do it. Yeah. yeah. All right. And let me take a little break. When I come back, I want to continue asking you a little bit about small businesses. And then I want to also inquire as to the entrepreneurial spirit. Is that alive and well in 2021? Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the show. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. You can always learn more about her at the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. She's also written several books. And what's your website? Do we just go to annbradley.com? <laughs> no, not not yet. Um, so you can go to uh, tfas.org, and you can look at my bio and some of the things I've done. You can also go to tifwe.org and yeah. see some of the books I've written and blog posts I've written as well well i will personally get your your website launched this afternoon i'll do it i'll take my own personal time and money to get it done that would be a huge personal favor to me all right uh that would be a a small business entrepreneurial sort of spirit i would be having if i actually did that um and let's talk about that because small businesses have been completely devastated who wants to put their toe back in that water yeah right it's about the risk and about what we our expectations of the future. So entrepreneurship hinges on people's expectations about what the future will bring. That said, and these are tumultuous times for sure, I think that, and I don't want to sound cliche, but I think that there's something truly unique about um, the spirit of entrepreneurship in particular in this country. Now, entrepreneurship can be anywhere. Because as human beings who are made creatively in God's image, that's what we're made to do. That doesn't mean we're all going to start our own business. Right. But we are our problem solvers. That's who we are. That's who God made us. That's exciting and hopeful. Uh, but that cannot be built into businesses, into community efforts, into civil society, into community life, unless people have you know, reasonable expectations about what their government is going to do, about the rule of law and all these types of things. And I think that those things need to um, really 
uh, be evaluated in the United States right now, especially with some of the events that we've seen. I think we need predictability and transparency. All of these types of things are going to allow people, if they have confidence in these American democratic institutions, they will dip their toe back in water because it's who we're made to be. And, it, and I think the United States has historically had a society that uh, celebrates the entrepreneur. Um, and that's not just small businesses. I think I, I don't like it when people say I'm pro-business because I don't know exactly what that means. I don't think we should be pro-business at any cost. But I think we should always be pro-entrepreneurship because that's the creative process of solving other people's problems. And in a pandemic, isn't that what we need the most right now? Yeah, it is. And and I've heard you say that many times before. You know, seeking to solve other people's problems, which is the beauty of business. It is. That's what it's for. And that, don't make a profit unless you serve your fellow human being, and not just one human being. Apple, Facebook, Amazon. <laughs> Uh, you know, think of any large corporation, Home Depot. They didn't get that way because they made one person happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They made lots of people happy. You have to care about what your your customers want and need. And Adam Smith, of course, writes so beautifully about this in The Wealth of Nations. And, and in fact, he says we should be suspicious of business interests, uh, right? Because they're just entities full of human beings. But it's it's the seeking of profit in a way that the profit is only given if people feel that they've received value and that that mutual beneficial society is what makes us trust each other and also, also grow rich. And so, you know, we need to get back to those roots. Mm -hmm. And you feel that the economy has been resilient. You know, this is an important question. I I think economies are, um, they are outside of command and control forces. I mean, that by definition, that's what they are. So I think that there's some built-in resiliency, and that be, that comes from the way they operate, the profit, loss, property right mechanisms that we've talked about before, of course. Those are the things that allow markets to be nimble, and that's what you need, especially in a pandemic, and especially with political uncertainty. All these things don't just plague Americans, by the way. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're far worse in other countries, right? But the market economy is, is, has this built-in not only resiliency, but it's nimble, which means people can act quickly and they can change what they're doing, and they only know how to do that because profit motives change. So think about the vaccines that I've, I've referenced a couple times, right? Nobody know, knew we needed this particular vaccine last December because right. we didn't even know the problem we had. But when entrepreneurs are alerted – to these problems through the market, they get right to work. And the fact that we were able to sidestep a lot of cumbersome regulations and get these vaccines out there in a competitive way, not just one company doing it, but multiple companies working on this is exciting. That is the market being resilient. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the gig economy? Do you think that will continue to be as strong as it has been in the last year? Do you think it will um it will, it will start to wane, or do you think that's that's coming back in a loud way? I mean, I hope if we don't regulate it out of existence, yeah. then I absolutely think the gig economy is – it's kind of like what I call micro-entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I, if we have a moment, I'll tell a story. This was a, an article that came out in the Washington Post sometime in March or April, you know, kind of when things were getting really bad. 
in the pandemic. And there was a student at Gallaudet University, which is in Washington, D.C., and she set up a pop-up shop in Washington, and it had little packets of masks and hand sanitizers. And this was a time when people could not get masks, and you couldn't get Lysol wipes and couldn't get hand sanitizer anywhere. And they put a a story about her little pop-up shop in the Washington Post. And the backstory is that her father has cancer and had a lot of these kind of stocked up medical supplies from various vendors through his cancer treatments. Didn't need all of them. So she took some of them with his consent, of course, <laughs> and had this, you know, created this little pop-up shop. Now, if she had a pop-up shop in Washington, D.C. last November, and said, hey, does anybody want a little kit that includes a personal size hand sanitizer, a mask, and some Lysol wipes? People would look at her and be like, that's weird. I'm not, <laughs> right? Why would I buy that from you? <laughs> mm -hmm. But in March, everything has changed. And so this is, becomes a brilliant micro-entrepreneurial venture. Now, she won't be needed to, it won't be necessary forever. But I think it gets to the core of what we're talking about today, which is if you allow human beings to follow through with their ideas. And if their ideas are actually tapping into a need that people have, then everybody wins. So we need more of those stories. And I really think there's so many of them out there. But I think this is the gig economy, right? It's small micro ventures that can sometimes grow into bigger ventures. And I think that's people creatively in their communities looking out the window saying, these are the problems. I have an idea about how to solve those problems. Let me go test it out. Mm -hmm. And what other, we just have two minutes left, what other economic indicators should we look at uh, when we look at, at housing and we see that the housing market seems to be pretty strong? A lot of houses are being built. Um, and then I think, what about the future of uh, uh, commercial space in downtowns across America? Yeah. So I think, you know, real estate is going to be very interesting to look at uh, as we proceed into 2021. I think there'll be a big difference between commercial and residential. So, you know, as you mentioned, residential, strong commercial. I think people are finding there's a new and more uh, a cheaper, more effective way, perhaps, um, to allow their employees to work. So I, I hope that 2021 also is about flexibility um, and it's going to change some norms in work environments. Uh, so I think we can look at those things in the future. I think we need to keep a, an eye on health care um, because it's not just going to be ab about vaccines, but other studies and treatments for this virus and in terms of looking at the longer term effects. So I think we need to keep our eye on that. And I think we should look at employment um, and keep our eye on, you know, are people getting back to work? And if not, then I think we need to say, why aren't they? And mm -hmm. what what policies or what can we be doing in our communities to help people in new ways be effective at doing their work? Yeah. And you're always a delight. I so appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Have a wonderful time with your brother celebrating kind of the extended holidays, too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest, Vice President of Economic Initiatives. You can go to the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics, tifwe.org, to learn more about Ann. All right. Well, after a little short break, uh, we'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, welcome back. You know, Peter uh, once. Uh, wrote of Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I know that uh, any student of the Bible has come across uh, something that's been hard to understand. And we're, uh, that's what we love about Faith Radio is every day we dig into the Word and we try to find out exactly what the author meant and uh, how we are to respond to it and grow in our faith from it. So uh, my guest today is a brand new guest of the show. Dr. Um, Guy Waters is my guest. And he uh, is uh, the James M. Beard, Jr. Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He's authored a number of books, including What is the Bible? A Christian's Pocket Guide to Justification, Being Made Right with God, and How Jesus Runs the Church. Guy, welcome to the show. Bill, thank you for having me. It's so nice to meet you and to have you on the show for the first time. I'm a fan of your work and how you're writing, and you definitely caught my attention with the number of articles you wrote, and I would love for you to talk uh, about a couple of them. So Wonderful. With Thank your, you. With your permission, I'd love to jump in. The first one that caught my attention is 1 Peter 3.19 that talks about mm-hmm. Jesus preaching in hell. And <laughs> when I had read that, I thought, ooh, what does that mean? Well... Bill, you're not the first. <laughs> I didn't think so. Company. Okay. Um, this is a passage that uh, our brothers and sisters across church history have, have wrestled with. Uh, it's not an easy passage. You uh, led the show by uh, quoting Peter's statements that there's some things hard in Paul to understand. Well, you know, it works the other way. There's some things in Peter that are hard to understand, too, and, and this is one of them. So, but as with uh, most hard things in Scripture, it, it repays hard work, and I think if we, we give it some close attention, we can find uh, some encouragement as we think about what Peter is saying uh, to, to, his, to the churches he was writing and, and through them to us. Mm-hmm. So is Peter uh, speaking in this passage about the, the death and res- resurrection of Christ? He is speaking about the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, in verse 18, uh, Peter says, speaking of Jesus, he, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the Spirit. And uh, Spirit there, uh, since it is set next to flesh, uh, would refer then to the Holy Spirit as it often does in Peter's writings and in Paul's writings. So in verse 18, which is the first verse in this this difficult section, Peter begins by pointing us to the once-for-all death of Christ for sin and his uh, resurrection in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are are pairing the resurrection of Jesus with the Spirit, so that's a good thing to know and understand— and that uh, Christ was raised by the power of the Spirit. We, I think we all understand that. So maybe you could talk, Guy, about this idea of um, what he was, when he was speaking to the spirits in prison. Mm-hmm. Good. So that's the very next verse. Peter says that 
uh, it was in the spirit that he went and proclaimed uh, to the spirits in prison. And this is where we, we really have to put on our thinking caps. And this is where some of the difficulties first faces. A lot of people have taken this to mean that in the, the period of time, the three days between Jesus's death and his resurrection, that Jesus uh, went either uh, physically, locally, in some way uh, to hell and engaged in a preaching campaign. And, and some see that as a declaration of his victory over uh, the condemned spirits in prison. Others have seen that as uh, an ingathering of Old Testament saints to, to bring them into heaven. Others have seen this as a, a second chance for salvation. And the, the problem with each of those views is, at best, they're, they're speculative. You're not going to find support in other places of Scripture. And at, at worst, they run counter to uh, other teachings of Scripture. Uh, we know, for instance, that Old Testament saints, judging from Jesus' parable in Luke 16, went right into the presence of God. Uh, we know that, uh, as Hebrews tells us, after death, there is judgment. And so there is no opportunity for salvation extended after death. So we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture to, to close off uh, some of these options that have suggested themselves uh, to, to Christians over the centuries. And so I think we have to say, as a start, Jesus did not engage in some kind of preaching campaign between his death and his resurrection. That's uh, very interesting. Now, let's talk, uh, Gaia, about this the description of these spirits. Where does that come mm -hmm. from? Yes. So <clears throat> here, uh, in verse 18, Peter mentioned the Spirit, uh, singular. That That's the Holy Spirit. But in verse 19, it's plural, the Spirit's who are in prison. So, so Peter's talking about something different here, and he's referring to the souls of human beings who, who have died, and they're in prison, meaning that they are being reserved for the final judgment. So this isn't heaven. Uh, this is hell. Mm -hmm. And what Peter is saying here is that these spirits who are now in hell, well, they, they were, of course, on earth when they were alive, and <clears throat> Jesus preached to them. Now, when did Jesus preach to them? Well, it, not personally, but by the Holy Spirit. Well, how did the Holy Spirit preach to these people who are now in hell? And that's where verse 20 comes in. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So putting the pieces together, what Peter is talking about is that when Noah was alive, he was, as he calls him in his next letter, a preacher of righteousness. And Noah preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he preached to the people who were alive in his own day. And they, of course, refused him. They, they mocked him, and only Noah and a few others went into the ark and were ultimately preserved. And as a result, because the people of Noah's day rejected 
that offer of mercy in in the gospel that Noah preached, there was no salvation for mm-hmm. them. Uh, there was only judgment, and so that's why they're in prison now, and that's what Peter is talking about in verses 19 and 20. So when we think of uh, these these souls in in mm-hmm. hell, the, the discussion, and there's no biblical support outside, I believe, of this scripture that we're talking about, would would... There's no support for them being in some kind of state of limbo, and when Jesus comes to hell and preaches to them, they have a second chance. That's absolutely right. There would be no other support for that in Scripture, and and that's one reason why we, we need to look elsewhere to sort out what, what Peter is trying to say. And when you read 19, verse 19, Peter doesn't actually say— that the time when Jesus preached to them was between his death and resurrection, uh, or the Spirit, rather. What he's saying is that the, the Spirit did preach to them, and then the next verse makes clear that the Spirit preached to them while they were alive on earth. They were pre- uh, this, uh, Noah was preaching, and he was preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe is there a, a better way to interpret Peter's words uh, and understand this text? I mean, you're doing a great job, uh, but is there a, a little summary verse, or I mean a uh, summary statement to better understand this? Well, maybe we could get what Peter is trying to say. If we if we think about what's happening in the verses leading into this. So he is writing churches who are being persecuted, and he is trying to encourage them to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you with gentleness mm-hmm. and respect. And, and he knows that when they do that, they're going to suffer. People are going to make fun of them. They're going to risk imprisonment, maybe even their own lives. And so Peter wants to encourage them to, to do what God has called them to do, to, to bear a good witness to Jesus Christ. And what he does, as, as so often happens in Scripture, is he says, think, think about what God did in the days of Noah. And he reminds them that Noah was, by his solitary, bearing witness to God in a generation that rejected that witness. But Noah was supported and empowered by the Spirit of God. God protected him, he goes on to say in, in verse 20 and 21. And the very spirit who was at work in Noah's life is the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is a powerful encouragement to believers to stand faithful, to bear a good word for God, mm-hmm. knowing that God will take care of us, God will preserve us, he will accomplish all of his purposes in and through us. And so we don't have to fear. We can be entirely confident that God is going to do everything that God wants to do. So that, I think, is really what Peter is saying here. Look back to what God did in the days of Noah, and the same spirit at work in him, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, is the same spirit at work in you. 
So go out and serve the Lord with confidence. I love that guy. And I think of Noah. We don't talk about him as much as we probably should, but, you know, Mm -hmm. he uh, testified to his hope in the gospel before a world that was mocking him for a long time. Exactly. I mean, you think about how long it took for Noah to build that ark, and the world looked at that as as a monument to his his folly. Mm-hmm. And Noah was undeterred, and he was faithful. Right. He he trusted God. He was, you know, he he could count on maybe two hands with fingers left over the people who didn't think he was absolutely <laughs> nuts. Right. Uh, but he he trusted God mm-hmm. and. You know, that's a, that's a description. We live in the same world. Uh, the world hasn't changed. They, they look at what we believe and, and what we declare uh, with the same kind of attitude uh, that the world did in, in Noah's day. And Noah was a man of faith. He, he trusted God's Word. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's our calling all the same. We can look back and see God's faithfulness to Noah we can know that God will be no less faithful to us today. Mm-hmm. My guest is Dr. Guy Waters. He's a professor of New Testament uh, at Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. After a short break, we'll be right back. Back to the show. So glad to have as my guest, Dr. Guy Waters. He's a professor of New Testament at Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, Guy, I want to ask you, uh, I know Jesus taught in parables and he uh, was a master storyteller. So when he got to the point when we have passages that we dig into, like the the uh, the feast of the parable of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, and we start to understand uh, m- more about the kingdom of God through his parables. It gets down to for me things like, and you wrote this beautiful article on this. What did Jesus mean by many are called but few are chosen? Mm-hmm. Great question, Bill, and. As you say, parables are they're they're powerful because Jesus he's speaking these parables not to entertain us, but he's he's trying to get under our skin and and make us think about eternal things and and his work of salvation in, in different and unexpected ways. And so parables often bring with them uh, surprises. They challenge us and. One of the things that's important to remember about reading parables is that Jesus often ends uh, with, with a line. It's, it's a bit like a joke. You get to the punchline. Well, in a parable, you get to the, the end, and, and that's going to give you the, the core of the message. And the verse that you just mentioned, many are called, few are chosen, mm-hmm. that's, that's going to be the heart of the story that Jesus tells this parable of the wedding feast. And I think to, to understand the story and to understand where Jesus goes with it, we we want to remember where and when Jesus tells the story. So 
we are at the the end of his earthly ministry. We're just days away from his uh, betrayal, arrest, his uh, trials, his crucifixion, and he's in Jerusalem. And the Jewish authorities who've been opposing him for years are really starting to, to mount their guns against him. And this is a parable that Jesus tells really as a, a warning to uh, the people of God who persist in opposing him, and, and particularly the leadership. And in this parable, he is predicting that the, the Jews, God's people in the first century, are, are going to reject him and this is going to be the way God is going to extend the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. So one of the things Jesus is describing here is, is the way that Jewish rejection would, in God's hands, be the way that the gospel gets to the nations. And that's not the end of the story, of course, for Jewish people. Uh, there's a, a gospel future uh, for them, according to the New Testament, the gospel goes to the Jew and to the Gentile. But part of what Jesus is doing here is is to show that in God's hands, even this opposition is going to be used uh, to great good, salvation to the Gentiles. So that, that's one of the things that Jesus is stressing in this parable. But y- you asked the question, many are called, few are chosen. That gets into another point Jesus wants to make in this parable. And we could start by saying, what do these words mean? What does it mean to be called? And if if you look through the parable, you, you see that word, call, show up any number of times. And here, the word call refers to an, an invitation. Remember, this is a, a wedding. And there are invitations that go out, just, just like today when we go to the mailbox and we pull out a wedding invitation. We have been invited to come to a wedding and to a reception. Well, that's the picture here. There is a broad invitation that's going out uh, to come to the, this wedding feast. And when you look in uh, the Bible, uh, a wedding feast is a description of the the joyous um, completion of salvation at the last day. So, so this is really Jesus giving us a, a picture of heaven, of glory, and of these invitations that are going far and wide. And, and of course, people are rejecting it, and then others are accepting it. And then that brings us to the, the next word, chosen. Jesus says many are called, few are chosen. And that's getting at this interesting little twist at the end of the story. So you have, imagine you're at this wedding reception, and it's a room filled with people, and the host goes in, and he he sees a man without a wedding garment. He's not wearing the, the proper clothes. And the host says, the king says, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. So what's going on there? Well, the, the wedding garment is the, the 
the garment of salvation. This is what God freely gives uh, to those who come to Jesus Christ, salvation. But we have someone who made his way into the wedding feast, and he didn't have the garment. So he, he seems to have responded to the call outwardly, but he really wasn't trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. And he's going to be removed at the last day. So what Peter is saying is that what Jesus is saying here in verse 14 is that this call is going out to all sorts of people, and lots of people will say that they respond to the call. But how do you know if someone has truly answered that call? Well, have they received Christ for salvation? Are they wearing the wedding garment? And, and those are the ones, Jesus says, that you know have been chosen, chosen by grace. Uh, so that's the, the point of the parable, I think. Okay, Guy, thank you so much for that. I know there's plenty of listeners, because I hear from them, and they say, I'm really struggling because I, mm. I'm pretty sure, you know, God loves me, and I believe I'm a Christian, but why do I struggle so much? And I think, well, if you have the, the wedding garment on, the, the righteousness of Christ, and the gift of salvation, and you've internally received Christ and asked for forgiveness, uh, Shouldn't the Holy Spirit just be coming alive in your in your head and in your heart saying, you belong? Well, that, that's, a, that's a, what you're describing, Bill, is, is something a lot of Christians um, face. We, we struggle. Um, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Or if I'm a Christian, why do I continue to have these, these battles day after day? And one of the things to remember as we think about this parable is that this wedding garment is is the gift of God. It is the gift of salvation. It's not something that we have, have earned. We're not achieving it. It's not something God gives us as a reward for good behavior. It, it is the free gift of God in the gospel. And what that does is it, it frees us to say that my salvation is all of grace, and so as I face these struggles and these battles and these trials, then I need to cast myself on the grace of God. He has freely gifted me with salvation in the gospel. His heart is one of love, and he invites me to come to him and find the resources, the, the forgiveness, and the strength to fight sin that are, are freely offered to me in Christ. So remembering that our salvation is all of grace should not keep us away from God. It, it should draw us closer and closer to God. Mm-hmm. Guys, something you said in an article of the Bad News is we have no power in ourselves to change our mm-hmm. rebellious hearts. The good news is God is pleased to change rebellious hearts by the invincible power of His Spirit. Amen. And that, I mean, it's a a wonderful connection with the passage we were just looking at in 1 Peter 3. Uh, We we need the Holy Spirit 
if we're to go out into the world and serve Christ, we need the Holy Spirit to, to battle sin and to stay close to Christ. Uh, that's what unites these two passages is the, the resources, the strength is not in us. It's in God, and he is more willing to give than we are to ask. Mm-hmm. And when you say, too, that you know only in Christ can we find an everlasting, unshakable foundation, that's one of my prayers for people nowadays, especially with everything that's going on in the world, that they feel in their heart, in, in the depths of their heart, a everlasting, unshakable foundation because of what Christ has done for them. That's right. And, you know, the, the feelings may waver from, from day to day, but as, as you rightly say, Bill, the foundation is there because it's laid in Christ. And we want to have a strong sense that uh, this foundation is sure. Mm-hmm. But even on those days when we don't, when it wavers, we know that the foundation is in place because this is Christ's work uh, for us and in us. Yeah. Guy, I have to say, first time on the show, five gold stars. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to <laughs> well, come on the program. It's been a pleasure, yeah. Bill. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank Doc- you. Dr. Guy Waters has been my guest, professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. That wraps up our show for the day. I'm so glad you joined me today. I loved spending time with you. I hope you grew in your faith, and I pray that as you put your head on that pillow tonight, just know that God is working out his great plan in your life. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.